And before we begin this episode with the real Roger J. Hamilton, just want to make sure that you are all aware of the Impact Awards coming on right now. We're trying to get as many applicants as possible before the 831 deadline because after that deadline, the price is going to double, folks. Go online to realears.com, register your Impact Company to receive recognition from our publication that reaches 30,000 CEOs in 135 countries and 2 million digital impressions a year. We do a great job working with all these companies to make sure that they are maximizing their reach and their message to our audience because that's what it's all about, folks. Companies stand up to solve some of the world's biggest problems, as you will hear on this episode. And if you haven't listened to this episode already, that means you are not in our newsletter. I need you to go on to slash newsletter or just realears.com. You'll find it on there and enter in your email uh, and name to be notified of the upcoming podcast, people. Roger J. Hamilton answered questions for about five minutes after this episode, and a wealth of information was in those answers. I wish we could put them in the podcast, but you know what? That's for the people that attended live. So, Easy way to do that is go to realears.com, type in your name, your email, and you'll be notified right then and there. Or just follow us on LinkedIn, follow us on any social channel. We'll be posting about it to make sure that our followers, our fans do not miss out on this unique opportunity with the best of the best leaders in the world. Last but not least, folks. August 31st isn't just the Impact Awards deadline. It is the deadline to receive 50 reviews from you all listening to this podcast. And I want to give a quick shout out to T. Clee 11 who left a review not too long ago and said, awesome podcast with great stories and insights. Kevin does an excellent job of keeping his listeners engaged by capturing relevant content that not only inspires listeners, but allows them to drink the drink to think deeper than the surface great work kevin the great work tkly 11 and how about haha vdv leaving a review yesterday esg interviews informative some really good interviews of esg ceos and leaders host doesn't take himself too seriously which is a nice change we always like a nice change we like it we just like to change it up here on the really just podcast and i hope that this podcast today changes your mind enjoy uh, the, the G10 are printed over $6 trillion in the last four months. Um, this is like showering down like money onto everyone. And as you know, rain can, if it's from below, rain can, or water can actually, like a high tide can, can float every ship. But from above, it sinks every ship. And that's exactly what's happening right now is that all this money is going into the stock market, into gold, uh, into Bitcoin. Uh, this is the first time in history we're seeing every single asset price, including property, all go up. Because fundamentally what's happening is that all this money is not getting to the economy and people, there are more people out of a job than ever. Uh, and the answer is not to keep on just printing money because money itself then devalues as we're seeing is happening right now. Right. The answer is to actually be helping everyone who is at a level at which they don't have a job to not have to get it, but know how to create it. And that's a, that's a pretty big challenge, but we're seeing it actually happening in pockets all around the world right now. Uh, and this creates whole new micro economies. Uh, and it's the leaders who are at the base level who will do a much better job with this than any government actually could. You are listening to the Real Leaders Podcast, where leaders keep it real. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that forecast comes from serial social entrepreneur Roger J. Hamilton. 
the founder of Genius Group, who claims the tsunami market crash is coming and leaders who don't prioritize their digital distribution may just drown. On today's episode, Hamilton explains the problems with printing money, how to accelerate the UN global goals, and that the mark of a good leader is how many other leaders one creates. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, let's give it up for the real Roger J. Hamilton. Enjoy. Recording in five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is Roger J. Hamilton, the founder and CEO of Genius Group. Roger, thanks for being with us today. Good to be here, Kevin. It's When I say thanks for being here, I am truly thankful. You know why I'm thankful? Because I've been telling myself I was going to get up before 6.30 for the past month, Roger. And this is the first time it's ever happened. So I appreciate you making me get up early for this 7 a.m. podcast. Thanks for being here. This is the best time of day. I was up at 6.30 this morning when the sun rose here in Greece. And, uh, and uh, I'm glad you're starting this new habit. Thank you. Thank you. Now, is it easy for you to wake up at 6.30? I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've been doing it for a long time. You're a serial social entrepreneur. Like, what's your sleep regimen like? I, I find that I don't actually need a lot of sleep. I normally sleep five hours, maybe six hours a night. And uh, the way I like it, I mean, I know there's lots and lots of people who will say you should have eight hours sleep a night. Uh, the way I look at it is, you know, the sleep you need to recharge is not that different from having a phone and it being almost out of battery at the end of the night and having to have longer to recharge. If you're doing things that you love all the way through the day, you're actually charging up as you go. So by the time you go to bed, you actually don't need a full uh, night's sleep to actually recharge back full again. Um, and that's, that's my experience. The people I know uh, that are out there doing incredible things, often they only, only need four, five, or six hours sleep a night. When did you find what you like to do then, Roger? I mean, did you have a job that you didn't like before? And, and was there a moment in your career that, uh, that you found uh, your, your real purpose, I guess? There was probably two really big moments. Uh, the first is when I realized what I didn't want to do. And the second one is when I realized what I did want to do. And they're probably like uh, close to 15 years apart. Right? And the, the one of knowing what I did want to do was actually when I was going down a very traditional path of uh, studying uh, a degree. I was studying architecture in Cambridge University. Uh, and that's my, and basically it was a very critical moment when I realized after you know, a good five years of studying architecture, you know, it's a seven-year course. And after five years, I was like, wait, this is not actually my future. Uh, and I definitely highly recommend that people uh, you know, find, uh, you know, do something similar to what I did to not end up uh, you know, 10, 20 years in the future doing something that they could have actually stopped uh, themselves much earlier from doing as well. And I'd be happy to share that story if you think it would be relevant. I think it would be relevant. Let's hear it. All right. Well, basically, I had, it was almost by accident, I had this, um, this thought uh, which I actually shared with a quite famous architect in England called Norman Foster. Norman Foster, uh, he, he, he's well known for a lot of uh, buildings around the world, actually. I've done a lot of airports and so on. And I was just super lucky because at Cambridge, we uh, had different people coming to do talks. And he was one of the people that came for a talk. So I said to him, because I had it on my mind at the time, I was there at like 19 years old. Uh, and I said to him, why is it that all of the most successful architects 
are all in their 60s and 70s before they're successful. Because it's true, you don't actually get you know successful 20-year-old architects. And he said, uh, it's because when you get out past academia, the way that someone gets to mastery is through learning cycles. Uh, they have to try something, see what worked, didn't work, and then do it again. With architecture, every learning cycle is a good seven, eight years because of the size of a project. So by the time you've gone through enough learning cycles to actually master it, you're going to be 60 or 70 years old. And I was like, wow, okay, I definitely would love to get more successful faster. So I said, well, uh, is there a faster way? And he goes, absolutely. And I said, what is it? And he goes, don't be an architect. So <laughs> I actually ended up quitting architecture and I got into publishing because in publishing, obviously, you can have a cycle every month. And frankly, now with online, you can have a cycle every single day. Uh, and uh, that just accelerated my learning cycle. So that was, that was my first um, you know, like realization of what I didn't want to do. Uh, and I became an entrepreneur. Uh, and uh, through basically default of being an entrepreneur, it was a good uh, 10, 12 years later uh, that I really found my true calling. And that was uh, education. Uh, and it was very much like, as you speak about, United Nations Global Goals, knowing that there is a major difference we can make in the world. Uh, and it was a particular mentor, his name is Bakun Sakura, that was the person that, that got me on that path. Uh, and I think that's one of the most important things. It's almost always a two-step process, knowing what it is you don't want to do, so at least you don't do that. Uh, maybe having a vacuum for a period of time trying to figure out what it is that you do want to do, but at least knowing what you're going to say no to. And eventually, if you just keep on persevering, you're going to get to the thing finally, uh, which is your true calling. I mean, that's my belief for everybody. Now, Roger, you went from the UK to Singapore, correct? And then you started this publishing company. How, tell us that story. I think that's a pretty unique story. I think you mentioned in one of your videos, you started during one of the, the Asia crisis. Like, met, explain <laughs> to our audience and unpack to them how this story goes and walk us through that journey. So I, I had been, work, I had been uh, uh, working with a number of companies in London at the time. And I was at, you know, at a point where I was thinking, well, my first publishing company, it actually didn't work out well at the end. But by the time I was like 22 years old, uh, I had uh, sold the company on an earnout, which I thought was a good idea. This is like when, and the company was doing very well at that point. We had uh, these city guys that were in about 40 cities around the UK. We were doing over a million pounds in revenue, which for I mean, for me, at 22 years old, was like a really big achievement back in those days. Also in the early 1990s, and um, uh, and and I saw that there was this whole big technological, you know, challenge coming. Where you know, not the internet yet, but maybe you know, something like kiosks that would be like you know, doing you know, digital maps. So I thought, okay, now's the time to be selling this business. Uh, and I found a printing company that was offered for buying it, and they said, okay, we can either give you cash now, or we can just keep paying you a percentage of profits for the next 20 years. And it's almost like, you know, you win the lottery and it's like, okay, do you want the lump sum payment or do you want to get paid over time? And uh, I thought, oh, definitely I want to get paid over time because of course it means I wouldn't actually have to work and I can just go do the things I want to do. Uh, and so I basically uh, did exactly that. I took that deal. Uh, and within, what, two years of me traveling around the world, like enjoying the fact that I was getting these paychecks, they stopped. And when I actually contacted back to the team to say, hey, guys, what's happening with the business? Uh, it turned out the other company just hadn't done a good job running it. The whole thing was getting run into the ground. It was too late for me to take it back. Uh, and I pretty much ended up with nothing. I thought, okay, I don't want to do that one again. So I started learning by uh, you know, going and working with some other entrepreneurs, some of the guys that set up Dell Computer internationally. I was working with them for a while. I got to a point where it's like, okay, 1997, time to start up a new business. Uh, my wife, Renata, at the time, we sat down and said, okay, well, let's not just be in London where it was pretty cold and, and rainy. 
let's go and choose a place in the world where we think if we were to live, we would really be happy, right? And, and we thought, okay, it has to be Asia because Asia was at the time really trying to boom. Uh, it had to be an English-speaking country because neither of us spoke any Asian languages. Uh, it had to be ideally somewhere where it had a stable enough economy, a vibrant city, uh, but also beaches because we wanted to have a family and grow the family as well. Uh, and so we actually ended up with two places, which was Sydney and Singapore, right? Those are the two that we came up with. Uh, and then we thought, well, we can't go to both. So uh, what next? And my wife was like, well, it's all about criteria, right? Like making any good decision as a leader is about criteria. We obviously have not set enough criteria. I said, yeah, good point. So what other criteria? And she's very English. So she says, a place with not too many Australians. <laughs> okay, so that's how we ended up in Singapore. So I ended up in Singapore and then, and, and my friends in London were like, you're crazy. Why would you just go out from the Singapore? And I said, because from Singapore, you can fly within four hours to over half the world's population, right? So like, like if you're going to have a global business, why not start from Singapore? And that was before many people were doing that. Uh, but we went ahead and did it. And within a month, the, uh, the, the, the financial crisis in Asia came. So if you're not in Asia, you might not know 1997 was a major year for Asia. But in Asia, it was a, it was a major thing. And because of that, uh, all my friends were laughing. But I happened to set up my publishing company then. That then actually was probably one of my first successful companies growing. Um, and that was how I started uh, uh, not just living in Singapore, but in Bali uh, and spending really the last uh, 20 years uh, out in Asia. Oh, I'm interested because right now, to me, I don't know if you deem this as a crisis right now, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts and advice for business owners listening to this right now during the crisis. Now, specifically that pertains to the UN SDGs. That's what I'm curious about. A lot of social enterprises right now, a lot of, uh, let's say, corporations, the funding uh, usually dries up or squeezes up for these social initiatives during this time. What is your experience with managing crisis? What is your advice to people listening to this right now? Well, it's, it definitely is a crisis. I mean, it's, it's by far the biggest crisis any of us uh, will experience in our lifetimes. And I really uh, do not think people appreciate just how big it's going to be. Uh, and I'm talking future tense because what's really... I mean, I, 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 I did a talk recently where I was talking about the Asian, uh, the Asian tsunami, which happened uh, back in 2004. Uh, and while a lot of people know just how big that was as a disaster uh, when it hit, uh, many people don't know the actual story of what happened, where there was a first wave, which was about, about, about two meters high, right? So about my height, um, which came in and, and it didn't actually kill many people, right? It, it swept some people away, but it, but it went right up and, and cleared the entire beach along Thailand. Um, you know, people basically ran up and saw that happening, and and they thought that was the wave, right? And if they had actually just gone up into uh, high ground, they would have been fine. But the wave disappeared, and it was a good like 10, 15 minutes later uh, that the big twenty meter wave came, right? And so that first wave was just basically there just to warn people, hey, look, you know, something's happening. You better take notice. Uh, I really believe what's happened so far is is not just the first wave. It's not even a wave. It's a ripple, right? Like what's happened, uh, especially because the governments have been so generous in printing money and giving it out to everybody. Uh, and even with that, we've got record unemployment, we've got record drops in GDP, uh, but what's coming is much, much, much bigger. Um, and that's because all, we were already talking a year ago uh, about the debt bubbles that were taking place, about the economies being well overdue, a correction. And in fact, what's happened with this coronavirus crisis is probably the worst thing possible uh, because we already had to have a correction. Uh, and by the governments basically 
just giving everyone more debt and actually putting people into a worse situation, mm. uh, it actually makes it 10 times worse when eventually it does come. So it is coming. Uh, it's coming pretty quickly. And what we've been doing, uh, so for anyone um, who isn't aware, uh, my company right now, Genius Group, we have over a million entrepreneurs around the world, mainly social entrepreneurs, where they're, they're out there looking to make a difference, uh, where we are helping a lot of them during this time to make sure that they are making the shift to a digital company. Because if you are digital, you know, if you actually have the ability to be able to run your business from anywhere in the world, if you can be doing it without having to meet people face-to-face, uh, we're seeing all around the world the digital wave is really growing. Uh, and this is about knowing that while there is uh, a major crisis that's wiping out a lot of companies, um, it's also accelerating a lot of companies as well. So I've seen many companies that have missions, whether it is uh, what they're doing to support the environment, which are actually growing at the moment uh, because of the way they're going out and, um, and providing value. Uh, and frankly, the way that the environment itself is healing in, at a rate that's never been seen in the last 50 years, uh, simply because the planes aren't flying, because um, you know, economies are, are working at half speed. Um, but the same goes also for just people's consciousness on missions. So I, we have many companies that have been working uh, on racial equality, for example, uh, or many companies that have been waking, uh, working uh, on supporting uh, you know, local communities, which at the moment are actually in overdrive in terms of the support that they're actually getting. Uh, not charities, because charities are going to have a tough time raising money right now because everyone's holding on to money, but social enterprises that are delivering value. And then as a result of that, being able to support more. Uh, my, my big passion uh, is education, uh, and we are seeing some of the micro schools and the effectively future of education, which are going to take over from the existing education system. Uh, the ones that we're saying, look, within 10 years, uh, everyone's going to figure out going and sending your kid into a classroom style format to try and learn how to get a job that's not going to be there is not a good way to educate your child. And at some point, they're going to figure that out. Well, that's being accelerated so that it's actually happening now. And all the schools are closed and all the parents are saying, what are we even doing sending our kids to these schools? Uh, and they're already looking for new solutions. So anyone who's in that space of um, education revolution are seeing their businesses grow dramatically, like 10 times at the moment. Uh, and so I think I, that's one thing I would say for everyone, uh, wherever you might uh, find that there is challenge, there's also opportunity uh, and it's spotting to see where the opportunity is right That's incredible. Now, how do you, I'm curious about this, ed- the education in the future though. Like, how do you see this? turning around in the near future, let's say 10 years, you see like being like micro learning. Is it all online? Is there no personal connection anymore? How do you see this turn out? So one of the, one of the biggest things, uh, Sal Khan, who runs Khan Academy, I mean, he said this himself as well. Uh, you know, like there's been lots of experiments on how to do things online, but things like MOOCs, which are all about like massive online classes, are still classroom learning. Whereas uh, there is a whole new way of learning which really goes almost back 500 years to the Renaissance, which was challenge-based learning, where you have got, you know, so for example, we're running right now the Young Entrepreneur Academy, where we've got all these kids who are everywhere from like you know, nine years old through to 15, 18 years old, and they're in a four-week course, which is online, uh, and they all are competing uh, with their business plans, where everyone gets to see each other's business plans, and they also are competing for $10,000 in prize money. Uh, and they are, we have the most incredible stories that are coming out of this. Uh, but what makes it work is that we have, first of all, pods where everyone is getting connected to each other, so social learning. Mm-hmm. Secondly, mentoring, where everyone's getting a personal mentor who already is an entrepreneur that's supporting them as well. Um, and thirdly, uh, they're getting a progress checked and challenge checked learning, which is, have you actually checked on this challenge? Like every day, there's something they can do to get these small wins. So it's like a gamified learning 
but one that the kids jump into every day because it's how they want to learn, uh, where they're not being taught, but more they're discovering, right? Which is, a, which is, of course, the way we'd love our kids to learn is, is how when we're entrepreneurs is how we learn anyway, by setting challenges and then stretching ourselves and our teams to make that happen. Uh, but that's not how most schools do it. Uh, and so by actually designing it in that way, that, that makes all the difference. Um, the idea of a micro school is a micro school is not something designed around a class. A micro school is where everyone has a personal path and it's actually designed around, designed around a teacher, right? So the teacher might have 10, 12 kids, but they might look after those 10, 12 kids for the next, um, uh, you know, 10 years of their lives from like, you know, six years to 16 years old. And so that way they're always guiding them to the right thing. Oh, you want to learn that? Well, there's a great YouTube video to watch. Oh, oh you want to learn that? Well, here's like the great program we can actually put you onto. So guiding them to all of the things already available online. Uh, and at the same time, the way that we've designed on GeniusU, which is our platform, the actual learning. Uh, it, I mean, can you imagine that right now today, if you've got someone who's nine years old who's trying to learn maths, like trying to learn like the basics of algebra and trigonometry, like what a ridiculous thing that they're learning from a textbook, which is 30 years old. The way we've designed it is that uh, the class, which is the one, just like TripAdvisor, that has the most rankings, or just like Amazon, the ones that go to the top, but everyone goes, this is the best class you can take to learn this. That goes up to the top. Uh, we share the revenues that come through from that with whoever created that. That could be a math teacher who just happens to be brilliant at sharing that. It could be a parent who decided to put that on there. It could be a nine-year-old kid who put that on there. And as a result, then ends up earning as a result of them having the best way to learn about a particular thing. Um, but as you can see, we haven't, with the old system, really brought and embraced all of the things we already have learned from social media or from like you know online platforms into education, we're seeing that change very dramatically right now because so many parents and kids are looking for online alternatives to going back to school. Uh, and no question, when schools eventually open, uh, many people will choose to actually stay with the new models rather than basically sending their child back to school again. I couldn't agree more. And I'm sure it would be coming at a lower cost as well. Now, right now, Roger, we're facing 4 billion people in poverty. The global goals are 10 years away from being achieved. Now, I found it very interesting that your mission right now is to accelerate these goals. How do you intend to accelerate these goals? And what does the word dynamic mean to you? Okay, uh, great question. And the best way for me to explain the way that we see that acceleration happening is to just go back to what I was mentioning earlier about Buckman Fakula, because while he's passed away now, when he was around, uh, uh, he's the guy who created the Geodesic Dome. He's the guy who came up with the concept of Spaceship Earth. I mean, basically, the probably best, or more importantly, most powerful concept he came up with was a concept of something called the final exam. Uh, and that's what actually got me on this track of being a social entrepreneur. Uh, and the concept of the final exam, he said this back in the 1970s, uh, he said that, you know, the only thing that stops us from solving all the biggest problems in the world is technology because all the biggest problems are simply distribution problems. So, for example, when we say, you know, there isn't enough food, there actually is enough food. It's just not distributed effectively. Or when we say there's poverty uh, because there's not enough money, there's plenty of money. It's just not distributed effectively. So technology is the distribution agent. It allows you to distribute much more effectively. And he said back in the 1970s, uh, there was already enough technology to solve all the world's problems. So, so the question is, well, then why aren't they solved? And he said, the reason they're not solved isn't because of technology, it's because of human consciousness, that we just have not actually embraced that technology in a way to solve these problems because we're so busy fighting with each other or just you know, protecting our own patch of the world. Um, and he says that the, 
this is not simply a nice to have for the future. It's a must have because technology keeps accelerating. It's, it's getting faster and faster. And what's going to happen is we're going to be tested, which is why I cause it the final exam. Uh, we're going to either be at a point where we're figuring out how to accelerate our own consciousness enough to harness that technology. And if we can do that, great. That means that we actually will solve these problems and we'll know it because we solve them. Or we won't catch up and technology will destroy us. And that's why it's the final exam. There's no exam after this, right? And that's obviously what the likes of Elon Musk is concerned about with artificial intelligence and just like so many people around the world are concerned about with this current crisis uh, is that we're, we're leaving it in the hands of politicians who some would argue have the lowest level of consciousness as to what actually it is we should be doing rather than us as entrepreneurs or as leaders actually stepping up to do these things themselves. So uh, the most important thing that we've done, and it's why I think we've attracted so many people, is we've gone back to one of the models in the past where conscious education design is a very different way of educating. The way they designed it was around three core things, which was not you know, algebra and you know, literacy and memory. What they created was a system which was around self-awareness, which is how much do you know yourself, which is all leaders know is the first step of being a great leader is, is knowing yourself. Self-awareness and then self-mastery, which is how to be the best version of yourself not the best version of someone else or what your teacher wants you to be. Uh, and then self-expression, right? Which and every great entrepreneur or leader knows that their legacy will be their greatest self-expression. So, so most of us never even get past step one, let alone step two or step three. Uh, where this comes into the United Nations Global Goals is in Japan, they have this concept called Ikigai, which is basically the intersection of four things then make up your reason for being. And each of us have a very unique one. And so Ikigai is linking four things together. One is, what are you good at? Which is your talents. Uh, second one is, what do you love doing? Which is your passions. Uh, the third one is, what does the world need? Which is your purpose. Uh, and the final one, which is, uh, what do you get paid for? Which is your business model. Uh, and, and that might be a job. And why this is so important is that we set up tests for each one of these, which is why we have the passion test, the purpose test. The purpose test is linked to the United Nations Global Goals. So we have had hundreds of thousands of people take the purpose test and all the ones that come out as education being the number one, they're all connecting with each other, sharing opportunities and solving the world's education issues. The ones that have poverty as their biggest one or environment as their biggest one are all getting together and sharing their knowledge. Uh, and these are entrepreneurs from all different countries, from China to Africa to America. Uh, and so we're connecting all the different people out there that are looking to make that difference. Uh, and we're seeing that difference now being made across the world uh, and so I'm very, I'm very optimistic, actually, that with this crisis, those that are able to survive and sustain themselves uh, are going to find that we are in a much more receptive world where we all know things do need to change. Um, and as a result of that, we're going to accelerate our, world, our way towards um, those 17 global goals as well. I am too. And it's been a privilege to be to interview you know, business owners and understand what they're doing to change their model, rethink and innovate around this crisis. It's been quite the opportunity. Now, the reason I asked you about dynamic is because dynamic is just really what, just a bunch of forces to change progress, to to to, to move an object. Uh, a lot of forces, you're a dynamic person and you have a lot of great qualities to you, right? That That's for good. Now, uh, with the crisis, you mentioned uh, a lot of governors are printing money. They may not, they, they'll be in a ton of debt. A wave storm is coming. In order to effectively have change, even as a private institution, at some point, you may need help or assistance from the government. You may need help and assistance from your, your stakeholders, your consumers, your distributors, your suppliers, customers. 
how do you see this changing and how important is it that a well-oiled machine comes to, together to accelerate this change? Yeah, great, uh, great question. And, and I and yeah, reminding me, I didn't actually answer the dynamic question. We actually have got a system which has been around for close to 20 years now, which is called Rough Dynamics. And uh, we also have that link to Talent Dynamics, which is for how to be a great leader. Uh, and this has been used by companies from you know, like Google and Microsoft, IBM, uh, within their own companies to really build their leadership styles. Because uh, the way we see dynamics, uh, and Wealth Dynamics, for example, gives eight different profiles of different entrepreneurs. So someone like Richard Branson, who's a creator, and I know you did your test, you came out creator, uh, you have a very specific uh, strength, which is your ability to start things, but also a weakness, which is actually finishing things or, 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 or not starting new things, right? Because we all love growing, growing, growing as a creator. And that's like an Elon Musk or Richard Branson. Very different from someone like a Warren Buffett, who's never ever starting anything, but he's more likely to collect what other people have created. Uh, and that's an accumulator profile. Uh, or, or someone like um, uh, Larry Page, who runs Google, who's much more of a Lord profile. Uh, Jeff Bezos, a mechanic profile, he creates a system more than a product. Without going into all the details, the most important thing is we all have a natural path. And, and what in Asia they look at as dynamic um, is a very different balance uh, from in the West. In the West, there's a very uh, static balance between what's right, what's wrong, what's fair, what's unfair. Uh, in the East, they have a dynamic balance of night and day, of yin and yang, of a rhythm that cycles. So when you have a rhythm that's cycling, if things are stagnant or things have stopped, you don't basically just try and build a base for it to get going again. You just start the cycle. You start moving that cycle. So we call that flow. Uh, and so, for example, if you, if you take the distinction of someone who's trying to get a job where there's no flow compared to someone who's, getting to, who's learning how to create a job where you're always able to create that flow, Right? The difference is someone getting a job is like, there's no jobs out there. I guess I just apply for a job, you know, and go to the job market. You know, someone who basically is creating flow is actually creating uh, uh, value uh, is saying, well, who do I know that's probably got a problem they're looking to solve? How can I just go in and solve that problem for them? Even not asking for money, just, just helping them to get into flow. And it's only going to be about a time before they're going to go, wow, you've been really helpful. Uh, I want you to stick around. And then before you know it, you've created your own job and they're paying you money. Uh, this is a skill set that most in the West don't know how to do. In the East, entrepreneurship is much, much higher than in the West. So percentage-wise in China and India, there are many, many more entrepreneurs because they actually do that. They, they, they go out, they start their own small business, they get going. And this is very, very important because it's about a cycle, about flow. And, and, and when you really understand that dynamics is about this cycle as well, then it becomes very, very clear that if you take the central governments of the world, between them, uh, the, the G10 have printed over $6 trillion in the last four months. Um, this is like showering down like money onto everyone. And as you know, rain can, if it's from below, rain can, or water can actually, like a high tide can, can float every ship, but from above it sinks every ship. And that's exactly what's happening right now is that all this money is going into the stock market, into gold, uh, into Bitcoin, uh, this is the first time in history we're seeing every single asset price, including property, all go up because fundamentally what's happening is that all this money is not getting to the economy and people, there are more people out of the job than ever. Uh, and the answer is not to keep on just printing money because money itself then devalues as we're seeing is happening right now. Right. The answer is to actually be helping everyone who is at a level at which they don't have a job to not have to get it, but know how to create it. And that's a, that's a pretty big challenge, but we're seeing it actually happening in pockets all around the world right now. Uh, and this creates whole new microeconomies. Uh, and it's the leaders 
who are at the base level who will do a much better job with this than any government actually could. I think uh, what's interesting as well is what companies will survive this. Uh, and from our research, we see, at least in the social enterprise space, it's, it's, it's those companies that are maximizing stakeholder value, the ones that are thinking long term about these things, uh, rather than just in you know, the, the quarterly maximize shoulder value costs, things like that. Now, in all your businesses, you were mentioning Eastern and Western philosophies, in all your businesses that you've started, has there been similar values that you've been able to instill that have maintained and stuck into those companies or any philosophies, uh, whether it's Eastern or Western philosophies that you've been able to drill down into the core of its business model? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the very, very first one really comes down to a, a kind of a saying we have, which is that wealth isn't how much money you have. Wealth is what you're left with if you lose your money. It's actually uh, what you know, who you know, uh, it fundamentally is knowing that the most valuable part of any business today isn't its financial, uh, is financial assets, um, because the, the, the issue with financial assets is that they very much sit uh, like financial capital is like a iceberg where you see the top of it, but all the most successful businesses in the world don't get there by just going out trying to grab financial capital. Because if you do that and you don't have a base to, to, to that iceberg, it's going to fall over anyway. Um, it's two other aspects which are much, much more important. One of them is social capital, which is what I mentioned about, like, you know, uh, and, and in China, they have a name for that, which is Guangxi, which is, which is your trust in others. Uh, and all the companies that are being successful right now are the ones that people actually trust. You don't get there by just advertising. You get there by really building communities. Uh, and as well as social capital, the other part is intellectual capital, uh, which is what you know, right? So it's the things that you actually have that people see of real value. Uh, and, and they need that even more than before. So we've seen our business actually grow very dramatically, because rather than just say, we want people to buy our products, we're more interested in our customers and our community and us solving their problem. Because if you're trying to sell your product, there's a good chance what people were buying six months ago, they don't want to buy anymore. But if you're looking to solve your customer's problem, you're probably going to be listening much more closely to what they need right now. And you'll find they've got more problems today than they had six months ago. So your ability to actually be of value to them is much greater today than six months ago. And they're willing to pay for that as well. If you can prove you can actually solve their problem for them. Uh, so we've actually changed our entire product range within six months. We ran the Crisis Leadership Academy, which is specifically to help you out of a crisis. We're running the Entrepreneur Summer School, which actually is showing people how they actually become a digital company. Uh, you know, We actually ran the Cashflow Crash Course, which is showing people how they can actually de deliver value and actually generate crash very quickly. Um, these are products we didn't even have uh, before the crisis began, but they are now in super high demand. Uh, because it's exactly what is solving the problems people need today. So these two elements of well, what is your social capital, uh, what is uh, your intellectual capital, and knowing that even in a crisis, these things do not disappear. In fact, they become even more important. Uh, and it doesn't matter if your financial capital goes down for a little bit. It's going to come back, provided you focus at these two instead of the financial capital. Uh, that would, I'd say, I'd say, is one of the biggest uh, principles that we see actually working uh, for companies today. And the second one, is it's all about economies of speed, not economies of scale. Right? Like, you know, the industrial era was always about, I'm just trying to get as big as I can. So that, those were the days of the unicorn, which is like, you know, growth for growth's sake. So unicorn's dead. In fact, it never existed. It was mythical to start with. Whereas uh, the zebra is a very, very different animal, right? The zebra is black and white. It's about purpose-driven. It's about your metrics. Or actually, it's okay to be black and white. It's okay to do good and do well together. Uh, and the zebra is a real animal, and it actually never sits on its own. It's always in herds. And so if you basically see yourself as a zebra, which is something that's sustainable and something that actually is going to go and make a difference in the world, don't do it on your own, but go find that fleet of ships 
that are doing the same thing and go in the same direction as them. Uh, and they're all out there right now. And I can see more and more people connecting with each other to actually find common ground with others around the world right now as well. I like that. Building a base and speed kills. Okay, we got that down. Now, also is what's happening right now is, is wealth inequality, wealth disparity. We are seeing a large gap rise because, let's say, for instance, you mentioned Bezos. Um, crazy rise in the stock price, and uh, a lot of people are benefiting from it. A lot of people have just lost their jobs. Now, all of these goals, uh, Roger, are interconnected. Um, what you mentioned, education. What may affect education could be food or clean water, people living in homes that may affect their minds at school uh, or in at the home, things like that. Wealth inequality may obviously affect all of these as well. Um, so with all of these goals being interconnected, how do you accelerate that change? How do you bring these all together? And do you think we're going to have to move the goalposts back from 2030 to another goal, let's say 2050? Yeah, uh, great question. And I, I would say that just what we were saying earlier around the difference of uh, static balance versus dynamic balance between the West and the East, uh, I think there's also a very different understanding of the wealth gap in the West and the East, which also is about static and dynamic. So what I mean by that is that there's a general thought in the West, which is wealth is like a pie. Like if it was, if it was just you and me, Kevin, and we were to say, okay, I'm doing well, you're not doing so well, we could look at a pie and it'd be very easy for you to say, well, Roger is doing well, which means he must be taking some of the pie from me, right? Which means I can't do so well because he's doing so well, right? Um, th that's a very, very, that's a very static view. And of course, that pie is always growing, but most people don't think of it that way. In the East, it's a very different thing. It's like, if we, it's, it's, like a, it's like we're both going side by side uh, and you're going faster than me and there's a gap. And I'm like, like, why is Kevin going faster than me? It's like, oh, it's because I'm running and he's on a bicycle, right? Well, wait. The fact that he's on a bicycle, I shouldn't try to kick him off the bicycle so that he goes at the same speed as me again. Maybe I can also be in a bicycle, right? So I get on my bicycle, but, but because you've figured out this whole thing about the internet and about going global, even as I'm trying to figure out the bicycle, you've actually upgraded the bicycle to a car, right? Or to a plane. You know, Jeff Bezos is on a rocket ship, right? So that gap of how much he can do and what he can achieve is so much greater, but that doesn't mean I can't also get on a rocket ship. Uh, you know, there's, um, he's not taking anything away from me. It just appears there's a much, much bigger gap because the vehicles available to us as business today are totally different vehicles from what was available 10, 20 years ago. And so what we're doing, for example, let's talk about our entrepreneur resort in, uh, in um, South Africa. We have a resort there where we actually are running different programs to be showing South African entrepreneurs how they can create their own rocket ship, how they can start their own business and start accelerating their businesses. We support the local school, which is right next to our safari park, and we're actually supporting all of them. Their actual grades have gone from where they were one of the lowest within the state to now the highest in the state in terms of class rates, in terms of uh, you know getting into universities, starting their own businesses. And this is because we're sharing that knowledge of how do you get onto the bike, how do you get into the car, you know, how do you actually improve so you don't have to go out looking for a job because you can start your own business and you can learn how to do that as well. And if you start thinking of the wealth gap in that way, that we all have this ability to be able to accelerate our own path forward as well, it's not a zero-sum game. Uh, it really changes the abundance mindset that is possible for us to have.
Roger, when you're speaking to me, you have a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of passion. Now, many business owners or just your everyday person may get a little tired when they reach, you know, a certain age or may reach a point in their lives and they say, you know, I just don't have any purpose anymore in this. I need to switch careers. What keeps you going? Why are you so enthused about this? Why are you so passionate about education? I think the first reason is I have uh, a lot of faith in the good parts of humanity and those that are driving things forward. And a large reason for that is because we make it a habit within our company every week to share the success stories of, of what's been happening or how they're happening. You know, so for example, just yesterday, you know, we had a, a meeting where one of the success stories was a 14 year old boy uh, who just loves writing. And he basically had, you know, come out with a book that it's sort of like one copy of the book in the last month. And they're trying to figure out, well, how can I write my next book? Because I love writing the first one. I want to write the next one. He got mentored and found out that he could actually, instead of just trying to sell the book, make money by charging for a character in the book to be named after a parent's child and actually makes more money now by having parents personalize the stories that he now creates for them than he ever could by just going out and selling the books. And these stories or, the, or these like, like sparks of genius where people are finding ways to create flow and create value, uh, I see this every single day. And that's what actually really, for me, creates the enthusiasm. Because I see when you see that spark and you see that ability for someone to really shine their genius. You know, like, you know, there's an Einstein quote, which is that everyone's a genius, but if you judge a fish by his ability to climb a tree or go for his whole life and being stupid, you know, there's so many of us have been dumped down to think we're actually not a genius. Once you actually realize every day you can spark genius in others, why wouldn't you have enthusiasm for that? No doubt. Now, Roger, you mentioned seeing the best in others. You've also mentioned uh, trust is really, really important during the time of crisis uh, for consumers, for business partners. Um, and also that technology only grows at the rate of trust, the rate of adoption. Now, to you, Roger J. Hamilton, is that leadership and what is your definition of a real leader? Uh, I think it 100% is. I think that trust is directly linked to leadership from the point of view. And that when we talk about talent dynamics, the whole thing is based down on trust. When you have the trust of those around you, if you do not have the trust around you, we see that in leaders, right? You, someone can call themselves a leader. They can call themselves a CEO or a president. Uh, but if they don't have the trust of those around them, there's no way for them to actually have any ability to leave a legacy or make a difference. Uh, you could have someone who has no assigned authority, but if that's the person that people trust, especially in times of crisis, you know, when you're when you're in a house and there's a fire and you're new to that house, you follow the person that you trust most. When they said this is the way to go, you follow that person because that's the person that has already either a track record or has already set themselves up in some way for success as well. Um, you know, my definition of a real leader, uh, I love the quote, this Tom Peters quote, right? And he basically says that, you know, a, a, a true leader is not one that creates followers. A true leader is that who creates more leaders, right? And I really, really believe that if, if everyone who's thinking about leadership uh, measures their success by how many leaders they've created, then they're 100% on the right track. Roger Smith, pleasure having you on the Real Leaders Podcast today. Thanks for getting my butt out of bed this morning. I had such a fun time getting to uh, pick your brain a little bit for Roger J. Hamilton. I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, build trust, create more leaders, and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Roger. 
keep on keeping on, good people. Thanks for hanging on to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast with Roger J. Hamilton. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And if you haven't yet left a review, good people, if you're hanging on, you like this episode and you want more, let us know. If you're on Apple Podcasts, scroll to the bottom. That's all you got to do. Scroll to the bottom. Sometimes it's hard to find, but just keep scrolling. Keep on scrolling until you get to a star rating. Let us know what you think of this show and let others know what to expect when they come to this channel. I'm going to give a quick shout out to T. Clee 11 He says, awesome podcast with great stories. And Kevin does an excellent job of keeping his listeners engaged by capturing relevant content that not only inspires listeners, but allows them to think deeper than the surface. Great work, Kevin. Great work, T. Clee 11 We love that feedback. And if you leave one this week, you're going to get the same shout out. Please help us reach our goal of 50 reviews by the end of August so we can improve our quality, have on better guests, and make your experience one worth listening to. Thanks for tuning in this episode, folks. And always, keep it real.